Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. It's good to be together. Uh, this will be our last week in Joshua on the series together. Last week we got, to, I'll take a look kind of at, um, at the obituary of Eliezer and Joshua. And through it we saw that in fact everything that Joshua had said was true. All the things that he had said about fulfillment and God's faithfulness actually did come true. Even after he was dead and gone, the evidence showed that God had gotten everything right, that he had done exactly what he said he would do. He was faithful to give them success, to give them their promised land, and to bring them into all these promises after five, six hundred year promise coming from Abraham that he had given to him. He had now fulfilled that. Um, I counted up, we've spent 27 sermons before this time covering the details of the book. Um, and along the way, I don't know if, if, if I'm alone, I just, I'm sure I learned like, I don't know, three times as much, and like I have to figure out how to say the right things for us. But along the way, I, I hear you guys talk to me about different things through Joshua that I didn't even say. That's the beauty of the Holy Spirit working in your hearts to bring you to understand the scriptures and to change your lives better than I could ever apply it. So we thank him for the work that he's doing in us. And I feel like if you were here for when we went through James, James was like this older brother, friend, pastor who came along and directed us and helped us and made sure we understood the essence of what it meant to know and love Jesus Christ. That our actions had to match up with what we said to be true about our Lord. Uh, we learned from Joshua, I don't feel necessarily as close as like a pastor, but man, what a brother to come along and be faithful in learning and growing and leading Israel. And I feel like what he did for us so well is he plunged us into our theological history, our understanding of who God was, and it's helped us to kind of walk along with Israel, learning about our God, understanding our covenant faithfulness in real time, what it's supposed to look like, and getting this wonderfully clear picture of what true prosperity looked like as they trusted him. Joshua certainly teaches us that God is faithful. Now, we may take that for granted, but Joshua's whole message over and over again is that he's faithful. It also shows us that he is faithful to complete or fulfill his promises. We see, especially by the end of the book, that he has come through on every one of those last promises. Joshua's account of Israel entering into the promised land also demonstrates for us what covenant faithfulness or obedience to the law looks like, and that brings prosperity and success. And so we've seen this and learned much along the way. There's been many lessons, even personally, big picture lessons, but also even in the nitty-gritty, we realize God's grace for us in this ancient book, thousands of years old, is still relevant for today, 2019. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful thing that God would even use this ancient book to provide fresh grace and help and mercy in our time of need. Um, but today, what I'd like to do uh, is recount the works of God that we find in Joshua. I want us to go back and look the whole thing, and I want us to trace through the things that God have, has done and see what we ought to do about it. 
What is his purpose in writing the book of Joshua? So instead of just kind of jumping all around here and there, I'm going to try to take us through work by work different things that he's shown us. I have 10 of them that I kind of want you to see. So let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Um, But before we do, let's pray together. I would ask you, church, not to take this time lightly. Together, we want to pray. This is not just for you to listen. You're not a, it's not a spectacle. This is us together approaching God, asking him to work in us, knowing that we need the Holy Spirit to actually change us. So I ask that you would pray along with me as we join together in communion with God and praying for his feeding us as we go to Joshua. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, may your name be praised in all the earth. We pray this morning, it's right now, we pray in your name, knowing that none of us otherwise are worthy to approach the throne by ourselves. Not even with our brothers and sisters of other fellow sinners. That doesn't overwhelm you. We're wicked and stained people who dare not come to you alone on our own. But in the name of Jesus, we come boldly. We love you, we adore you, and together we declare our dependence on you today as we come to your word to be fed. So as Jesus taught us, Lord, we ask, would you give us our daily bread, Lord? Not tomorrow's bread, not the week's bread. God, would you give us what we need for today? so that we might properly rely on you for each provision that we need day by day by day. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who lives inside us, convicting us, transforming us, making us like Christ. We thank you for the Bible, which always tells us the truth and lights our path so that we might not falter and run headlong into sin away from you. Would you teach us then to love and to fear you this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's take a look at the works of God through Joshua. I'm going to just start with number one. Here we go. Chapter one, the presence of God. In the first chapter of Joshua, when we started this out, we saw that God comes to tell them, to give them a task, what they're supposed to do in the book of Joshua. If you remember this, it's in verse two. Moses, my servant, is dead. This is God speaking. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I had promised through Moses. Now, this is a command. Let's put ourselves in context here. Remember this. This is a command of the, to the people who were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Full-on families. Uh, you've got all their stuff with them, all in a foreign land full of hostile kingdoms who want to go after these people and destroy all of Israel. This is the task that they've been given. Move all those people into this land, the hostile land. Arise and go over into that one. But notice, right from the start, the beginning, right here, God's grace to us. We're still in the first chapter. We're not even like too many verses in. He promises victory, but more than that, he promises his presence. Take a look at verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Perhaps, maybe for us, I'm sure for them as well, one of the most, uh, how do I see it, 
underseen or at least underappreciated works of God is the fact that he is with his people? We take that so lightly. The fact that God would be with his people is an enormous work of God, that he would condescend and work among his people. We know most specifically through Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit, which mediates his presence in us. But this presence was given to his people. So he said, I will not forsake you. I will not leave you. I will do these things in and through you. It will be by my power. But remember, I will be with you. Again, from the very beginning, we observe that God is working in his people, but he's not just telling them to go do it. Instead, he gives them the power to do it by saying, I will be with you. My presence is your gift. It is everything that you need to do what I've told you to do. That's the first thing. Number two, God powerfully opens the Jordan River in chapters three and four. Let's think again. Roughly one to two million people with all their herds, all their families, all their stuff, all their carts and wagons and everything has to go into this land. By the way, during the harvest season, which the, the banks are overflowed with what's going on with the water there. There's too much water. And all those people have to go across there. Now, we would think, okay, Army Corps engineers, let's get some bridges going. Let's get some rafts made. Let's get over this thing. We'll, we'll do this thing. But God says, no, 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 no. I will take care of the situation. In fact, what I want to do here is this is so difficult for this many people to cross this river. I'm going to show my mighty works to the nations here by what I'm going to do. Instead, God says this is what will happen. He told them that he would make a way for them to cross without any of that stuff. And he does. Listen to verse 16 and 17. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel passing on, was passing on dry ground until all of the nation finished passing over Jordan. God causes the Jordan River to stand up in a very high heap, far away, so that the people could cross over into the land on dry ground. This is a miracle. Now, like, I realize we're far away from it, like, we don't think about it too much, but can you please for a moment stand there with a million people trying to cross a big river that's raging and think, how am I going to get my kids, my donkeys, my sheep, all my stuff across this river? And God says, I will do it. And you watch as the water stands miles away up in a heap, and you are able to cross on dry ground. Think for a moment of the perspective of the Canaanites as they watch this happen, right? They know they have this pretty solid boundary line. It's pretty simple. It's water that comes between them and everybody else. It's a good boundary. It's strong. It's natural. It's very difficult to cross. They're pretty good confidence that it's going to be fine. And as they sit there, the guy that's the spies or that's looking out, he sees that it's not there anymore. And he's watching as this horde of people start coming across to him. Can you imagine being that guy that has to report to the king like, uh, sir, yeah, you know the boundary that used to be there that kept everybody out? It's not there. <laughs> They're walking across a dry riverbed. And the king's like, no, 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 it's harvest time. There's like a ton of water, right? He's like, yeah, I know. I don't know how to explain it, except I think we got wind that it might be Israel's God who's doing this. And good night, we have no other explanation for it. So 
we're freaking out. We don't know what to do about this. They are now moving into our territory. God causes the river to stand up in this great heat, and you can imagine as their hearts melt seeing this great work of God. We ought not to take this lightly. This is miraculous. And even after this, the people of Israel set up 12 stones for memorial. Remember this? And it points to the awesome work of the Lord. Listen to 4, 21 and 22. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan, the one you see right in here, on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for, you, for us until we passed over. The stones then are a constant reminder of the works of God in stopping the Jordan and allowing his people to cross over into the promised land. Huge work of God. Number three, it's going to sound like a little different one. God stops the manna. Chapter five, remember this. On, the, on first hearing this, we might think, uh, it sounds like God is stopping a work, not starting one. It sure sounds like he's stopping something. Yes, agreed. But let me read verse 12 to you. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. I mean, why did the manna stop? What, what, what happened there? Because they're finally eating the produce of the land. Don't you think they're probably getting a little, even if they're trying to have happy hearts, they're getting a little sick of this manna wafer stuff. They've been eating it and eating it and eating it. Now they get fresh vegetables, fresh fruit, the things that are around them in the land most likely are able to hunt in this area. And now they're able to take this. Do you understand that this is a great work of God? Him stopping says, yeah, this is all yours to go and get now. You must take from this produce of the land and you can eat of this. This is a work of God. So much so that he stops giving them this manna. Number four, the divine warrior. God reveals, if you remember this, to Joshua who it really is who's going to fight their battles. It's not Joshua's great military prowess, although I think he was probably a good warrior. It's not all the resources he gathers. It's not the training that he's done. In chapter five, verses 13 through 15, we see that it is the work of God and he makes it very, very clear. Let me read verse 13. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, I, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? If you remember, he says, Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. He's not just some old angel. This is the divine presence himself. He told them that, they would, that he would be with them. And here, not only does he tell him, he shows him the divine warrior, a great work of God, a tangible, experiential way that we see that God will, in fact, do what he says he will do, that God will be with them and he will win their battles for them because it is the divine warrior who will go before them. That's the fourth one. Number five, fall of Jericho, chapter six. Now, if anyone knows anything about the book of Joshua, they know that the walls came a-tumbling down. Like, that's what you know. But we can't let the kids' songs and the familiarity with this one thing take from how incredible this is. This work of God. God brings Jericho to its knees, and the city is devoted to total destruction. Listen to Joshua 6, 20 and 21. 
So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. It was not their political or military prowess or all their resources that brought the wall down. It is a clear picture that this is the Lord who is going before them and giving them victory. All the people did, if you remember, is obediently kind of take laps silently around the city. And it was God who brings it down. The fall of Jericho is a great work of God. Uh, Number six, the anger of God, this is going to sound weird, the anger of God on Israel because of Achan. In chapter seven. Listen to verse one. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Now let me keep explaining this for a minute, because it doesn't sound quite yet like a work of God. In the next battle, God graciously spares the life of almost 3,000 soldiers who went up against Ai. But in the process, 36 men die because God's wrath is on the nation because of Achan's sin. He could have wiped out the entire 3,000 that went up against them. Graciously, he kills 36. Now, we don't quite see it that way, but that's exactly what's going on here. Why? Because his wrath is against the nation because of Achan's disobedient, covenant unfaithfulness. He has not done what the Lord told him to do, and so God's anger burns. Now, we may say again, how is this a work of God? Friend, the work of God is not the work of Santa Claus or some sort of nice, fluffy, uh, kind, and only good things happen, only things that you like. Our God is holy. Our God is just and true and sovereign. But he is also merciful. It is his great mercy and care that he would show Israel that his anger is against them. And that so they might understand and they'd be able to respond in repentance and faith. And what do we what does this do about this, Joshua? And he tells them exactly what to do. We see God bring judgment on Israel for their unbelieving disobedience of Achan. The fact that God has done this again teaches us that he cares deeply about teaching his people to know him. Because God showed Israel this great treason, They responded in obedience, and they dealt with the sin seriously. Let me read from chapter 7, verse 25 and 26. And the Lord said, I'm sorry, and Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? He's talking to Achan. The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. God's anger is turned away, and the destruction of Israel is prevented because of the great work that God has done to reveal this sin. This is God's grace and a great work. Number seven, and this is a big one, the victory over all of the armies in Canaan. I mean, let's just talk about a few of them. After the defeat of Ai, after the people make it right, and they do exactly what God has told them to do, they turn the task of conquest again. Except this time, the Lord gives Israel victory every step of the way. Listen to 8.1. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear, do not be dismayed, 
Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And that's exactly what happens. He goes in, they take the land, they take the city, and all of them are wiped out because God has given it to them. After this, they move on. They fight against the kings. Remember this, they come against Gibeon, these kings that come against and make us coalition, and they have to go up against them. And we see in this battle multiple incredible works of God. Let me just rehearse a few for you. In chapter 10, verse 10, if you remember this, it was the Lord who threw the enemies into a panic. That wasn't Joshua's like strange messaging and something. No, God threw them into a panic. In verse 11, this is to me even more incredible, as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with a sword. Who's doing the work? Who's working these things out, showing great works? This is our God. Look at 10 and verse 13 and 14. This is one that we remember. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Not only do we see all these works of God play out in all these specific battles, which is incredible, the hailstones, the panic, uh, making the sun stand still, but consider the sheer amount, the accumulation of victories over time, over time, again and again. He's like a hundred and zero. He's never lost a battle here. God is always going to win. Israel made war with everybody. They didn't, and in, in, in a sense, they didn't like choose, like, I'm not going to do those. We'll just kind of stay away from them. They made war with everybody. And we see as a result God giving them victory. When they went on the southern campaign, if you remember this, God gave them victory. Joshua 10 42 says this And Joshua captured all of these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Not only there, but then they went to the northern campaign. Look at Joshua 11, 6 through 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merim and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon, as great Sidon and Misrephoth Mayim, and the eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. The Lord showed his mighty works through each one of these battles and the sheer amount of accumulated battles over all of this in Canaan. This is a great work of our God to remove their enemies, to give them into their hand. And it was such a strong work of God that it led to a certain promise being fulfilled. In Joshua eleven twenty three, we get the word. Finally, the conquest has been successful and all the land has been subdued and there has been something that has never been experienced before. Rest. He says right here, let me just read verse 23 in chapter 11. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments and the land had rest from war. God had finally granted the rest that he had promised Israel 
And now here we are. He did it by his own mighty hand as giving Israel their enemies into their hand. So that's the seventh thing. Eighth, the lands are allotted. It's a great work of God to actually watch him give the people the land. In Joshua chapter 13, 6 through 7, we read this. All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon to Mesrephoth, uh, Mesrephoth, Mayim, even all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for inheritance as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land for inheritance to the nine tribes and the half tribe of Manasseh. And then you guys know this. In the subsequent, subsequent chapters, we watch Eliezer and Joshua divvy them all up between the tribes. All of chapters from 13 all the way to 19 are a record of real estate, real land ownership with names and boundaries and places that now are owned as an inheritance by the tribes of Israel. It's not just some nebulous, hey, go take the land, go find a couple trees and a couple of mountains to be by, and you can have that spot. He makes sure that he gives each one something specific. And that's what we get here all the way through from 13 through 19. It teaches us many important lessons, but at the core, it's the fulfillment of God's promise to bless the sons of Abraham with land, with rest. And we are reading about a great work of God, not just some land grants. He is legally allotting the lands to tribes, giving them direction now to go in and possess it. And even in all of this, we get to chapter 20 and 21, right, which we kind of consider even more boring stuff. But 20 and 21 tell us something very important. If you remember in chapter 20, it was the cities of refuge. It was for those who are a manslayer, perhaps by accident, and they had to flee to this place so that they would not be killed by the family or the one who was the avenger of blood. And we saw, even through this, that God cares deeply about justice to make sure that there was some sort of fair trial or they would be uh, safe from harm. And see, even in the, even in the fabric of the, the land itself, he is weaving in spots of justice. And then 21, remember, is the cities given to the Levites and the pasture lands given to the Levites. Well, who are the Levites? The ones who mediated the presence of God, the one who taught the law, the ones who offered the sacrifices for the people. We see throughout the entire land is dispersed all these different cities and pasture lands so that among Israel will be heralds of the steadfast love of God. So wherever these cities and pasture lands are, the Levites, if they're doing their job right, are a bastion for the truth of God's love for, for Israel. And so even in 20 and 21, as he is making all these land allotments, although we see it kind of boring, it's an incredible statement to show that God cares deeply about justice and about his steadfast love and his people understanding it properly. This is a great work of God. Number nine, promises kept. In chapter 21, 43 through 45, we learn that God has kept all of his promises. Listen as I read 43 through 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their, for their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. It all came to pass. The God who promised Abraham offspring, land, rest, blessing, had come through on all of these promises. 
He's reminding us that he is no liar. Now, the question we rightly ask kind of as a side note is like, why doesn't the Bible stop at the end of Joshua then? Like, all the promises are fulfilled. Well, we know a little bit better than that. We know that they are completed, that these promises do show us that they've been fulfilled, but there's even more to come. If I can kind of think about it this way, when Abraham is promised an offspring, he's promised a seed, does he get it in his lifetime? The answer is yes, he does in Isaac. Was that the total promise? Was that the total promise fulfilled? No, it was one. And yet, did God fulfill his promise? Absolutely. It's what we're seeing even here, because we know there's lots to come, right? We know Judges comes, then we know the kings, and then we know the exile, and all the stuff that's still to come. So we're like, man, I wish we'd just stop there and everyone would have obeyed, it would have been good. There's much still to come in our story of redemption, praise God. But he's showing us here that God keeps his promises. Now, that's nine different works of God, um, but we're actually not done yet. There are several other ones we could talk about, but you may realize that I skipped over some important people, some very important characters in the book of Joshua, and they should matter a great deal to me and you as we are non-Jews. Number 10 is the salvation that comes to the nations. In chapter 2, we go along, we join the spies in Jericho as we meet this lady who saves us, <laughs> as he saves these people, a Canaanite woman prostitute, Rahab. She isn't looking for money or favors. Instead, she shows us by her confession that she has seen the works of God. All we just talked about. She has heard of what has happened through Moses, what happened at the Red Sea, what happened at the slaughter of Sihon and Og. She knows, along with the rest of the people in Jericho, that the Lord God of Israel is powerful. She gets it. But unlike her fellow citizens, she responds differently. She didn't cower. She didn't run away or prepare to fight against this God. She confesses that this God is the true God and that he alone is the one that can save her. Not the might of Jericho, not the joined forces of all of Canaan against these people. She realized it's God that they're fighting against and she says only one way can have salvation from this and that's joining his team. And so she asks for it. Listen to her confession in verse 11 through 13. And as soon as we heard of it, I heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God of the heavens, in the heavens above and on earth beneath. Now then, so here's her plea. Please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. Rahab saw the works of God and knew that the hand of the Lord was mighty. She realized this, but by faith, she did not run away from this God. She did not pick up arms to fight against them. No, by faith, she throws herself on the mercy of God and God alone, the only one who can save her. And in his great kindness, he has mercy on Rahab and brought her and her family deliverance. Because of her faith, God saved her and made her his own. But Rahab isn't the only one, right? What about chapter 9? In chapter 9, we meet the Gibeonites, I mean, a clever bunch, to be sure. Um, we watched as they tricked the Israelites into giving them a covenant of salvation. 
But rather than this just being some sort of mistake on Joshua and Israel's part, a mistake made by God, they let them slip through, we realized this was no mistake. We realized the Gibeonites ended up looking just like Rahab in their confession. In faith, the Gibeonites submit to the God who is destroying all their countrymen because they believed that this God was the only one that could actually save them. Their attempts to fight against him would be futile. And they understood that. And so instead, they're like, we got to get a covenant of salvation with this God. That's the only way we're going to survive. There's no other way. We must have him. In faith, the Gibeonites submit to the God who is destroying all their countrymen because they believe that this God was the only one who could save them. Let me read verse 24 through 27 of chapter 9. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, so we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. Do you realize that they actually believed the promises of God? The nations believe the promises of God. That is a st- I just kind of saw that right now. It's amazing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good to you and right in your sight to do to, do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers for the, of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. And we remember how sweet it is to be a servant in the house of the Lord rather than dwell in the tents of unrighteousness. Gibeon here becomes a believing member of Israel. They submit to the protection and rule of Yahweh, the God who saves. This is a work of God. We should stand back and be amazed that he would draw Rahab and Gibeon to himself in faith and that he would make a way for them to have salvation. Joshua then has presented us the Lord as God who has done wonders and great works. Today, though, we want to ask the question, why? We should always be asking these questions. Surely there's many good reasons for us to to understand and to learn from these things, but what should we make of all these many wonders and works that God has done through the book of Joshua? What is the purpose of giving us the account of God this way? I would submit to you this, that God's purpose is actually to proclaim himself to the world. That he is putting himself on display. That he is showing them who he is. He is revealing himself. History, we know this, isn't about facts. It's about a person. It's about the one who created history. And with this theological history of God and his people in Joshua, we have two groups that it speaks to, right? We know this. One group that believes, uh, or, at least they, or at least they say they believe, or, and one group that does not believe, or maybe they have not yet believed. I think the book of Joshua is meant to speak to both of us. The writer is showing us that even in this time, God was speaking to the nations and to his people, both of them. We actually get this kind of nice little summary in Joshua uh, 4. If you take a look there in 23 and 24, Joshua talks about what's going on with the memorial stones and why they're so important to the nation uh, that's been set up. And let me just read them for you. Listen to the reasons that Joshua gives. Verse 23, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that, or in other words, this is why. 
so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. That you, so this is like another so that, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Did you catch that? There are two points, two audiences, two people that are supposed to understand this proclamation of who he is. He does these wonders, number one, so that the nations might know that his hand is mighty. But then number two, he does this so that we, or you, he's speaking to Israel, God's covenant-keeping people, that you might fear the Lord forever. The great wonders of our God are not to be some sort of trophies that collect dust in the back of our closets. All of these things point to us. Even as we pull out Joshua off the shelf and start working on it together, we realize that not only is it relevant, it points to an incredible, wonder-working God who has done great works for his people and will continue to do so. We know the truths about Jesus Christ. We know what he has sent his spirit to be with us. Emmanuel. We understand this, but we, we can easily forget that Joshua has been teaching this all along. And he's shown us that he can be trusted. So there it is. I think the question, though, for us is actually pretty obvious. Do you fear the Lord? Or do you see that his hand is mighty? There's two, there's, there's two groups, right? And actually, they, we can get right answers out of both of those groups. Let me, let me go somewhere here. Like, do you fear the Lord? We'll respond to this great wonder-working God. Unbeliever, people that do not know Christ, there's two options for you. You can be like those who decided to join all the kings together, to be scared, but to arm themselves and go fight against this God. You will lose. Or you can be like Rahab and Gibeon who humbled themselves and knew that they could not fight against this God. And there's only one way to salvation, and that's through his grace and mercy. Having him be your king only. Believer, we also have a choice. We can either be like Achan, who said he was a believer, but proved himself through his disobedience to God to actually be a Canaanite. Or we can be like the rest, Caleb, Joshua, Eliezer, all of Israel that obeys over and over again as they submit to him as their God. As they struggle to, but attempt over and over in, in faith and repentance to love God, to fear God. Guys, this isn't, um, this isn't a guilt trip. I can't make you fear God. I can't. You can't even make you fear God. And yet it is here as a choice before us. You will choose one of two ways. If I can ask you as your brother and friend, do not choose the worldly option. The world will lie to us. It will always tell us the thing that's not true. But the Bible, again, it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path showing us the truth that fearing God, loving him, obeying his commandments is not shackles, it is freedom because in him we will have life. To get, to get together today, let us draw near. Let us fear him. Let us love him with whole hearts and be thankful as his people. Now, the sermon's over. Usually I just jump to prayer, but I was convicted this week so often I jump to that, that I think we like close our eyes, we close our Bibles, and we think about lunch, and then we think about maybe a few things, of the and we're not praying. So can I just stop you for a minute and ask you together, let us pray over the things that we have heard from Joshua, 
not the things that I've said, but the things that he has told us, and that he would work these things in our hearts. So if you would join me in prayer, let us pray together. Dear Jesus, you are our king, you are to be trusted, and you have proven yourself over and over. We thank you as we look forward to all that you will do. We look here in Joshua and we see all the works that you have done. And they are, they've done greater ones than these even, Lord, in Jesus Christ. So our hearts thank you and we worship. But it's not done. We're still here. Christ has not come back yet. So we long for the day that you will come back and return and make all things right. Lord, briefly before I close, I, I pray that your kingdom would come, your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray that those here that do not know Jesus, that maybe they think they know Jesus, but they don't. You are not their Lord. They have their own other gods. I pray that you would break their hearts and that you would give them soft hearts of flesh and they would trust you as the only God. God, do that work. I can't. Your only, only your Holy Spirit can actually shine the light of the gospel into dark hearts. Our children, those who are neighbors, those that are among us that think they're Israel, but yet they're showing themselves to be a Canaanite. God, please do that work among us. And Lord, as us who trust and believe, I pray that you would teach us to serve and love, and as Joshua shows us, to fear you. We will put this time in your hands, and we rely totally on you to do it. And we thank you for your grace in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.